0: if we enter this market, we're gonna be the, the dominant player and we're gonna own the whole thing.
1: Happy Wednesday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. I'm your host, Packie McCormick, and Not Boring Founders is a podcast where we talk to the people who are building the future. This one is a really special one for me. Early, early on in Not Boring's life, one of the very first pieces that I ever wrote as kind of a full essay on Not Boring was a piece on world builders and shop callers. And world builders is a concept that I talked a lot about in Not Boring. It's this idea of people who can see something non obvious about the future, timestamp their prediction, and then walk the path that might not be obvious to anybody and even, you know, employees, investors, the hard path to build something that in a decade ends up being really, really important. I talked about people like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and of all people, Henry Ward, the founder and CEO of Carta. Here's what I wrote in the piece. Ward understood that cap management software and a subsequent 409A valuation product were the wedge that would make Carta the system of record for asset ownership. Winning those unsexy pieces of the market made Carta a fixture in the fundraising process, a position they used to build a fund management product for investors. Since that piece, Carta has continued to build off of that wedge, adding Carta X and a compensation product, which Henry will tell us all about today. Before though, we get to the piece, I want to bring you a word from our sponsors of all of season two of Not Boring Founders. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, it's FTX US. Whenever I do these spots, I keep telling you that you've probably heard of FTX. FTX was valued at $40 billion. FTX US was recently valued at $8 billion itself. They sponsor Lewis Hamilton, the Miami Heat Stadium, of course, Not Boring Founders, and they've been busy over the past week. Over the past week, they extended a $250 million revolving line of credit to BlockFi. And just yesterday, they announced that they acquired Not Boring portfolio company Embed, which hints at their ambitions in the world of traditional equities. After starting just a few years ago with the best trading platform for professional crypto traders, FTX is eating all of finance. That's good for you and I because we can use the FTX app. The FTX app is the most affordable way to buy cryptos, NFTs, and even stocks. Recently, FTX announced that you can trade stocks in the very same place that you can trade cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, and even Doge. FTX has the best liquidity and the cheapest fees in the industry for both sophisticated investors and for more retail-focused users like you and I who want to just dollar cost average and buy crypto once in a while. If this market has taught us anything, it's that not many of us are good traders. Dollar cost averaging is often the right strategy, not investment advice. We are huge fans of FTX over here at Not Boring, incredibly grateful for their support of this podcast and for making this whole thing possible, and grateful that they've given you an offer to go get started trading right now. If you go download the FTX app in your app store of choice and enter the code Not Boring, you'll get a free coin when you trade $10 worth of crypto or you can just click on the link in the show notes below and it'll do it all for you. That's the FTX app. Go download it, start trading, and say thank you to FTX for sponsoring podcasts like this one with Henry Ward of Carta. Henry, welcome to Not Boring Founders. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I wanna start in the place that I always start, which is imagining what the world looks like in a decade if Carta is as wildly successful as you want it to be
0: two things will be different. So one is, equity compensation will be a a standard part of any compensation package for people that go to work. Today, it's of course, everybody joins a company, they expect to be put on a payroll system, but they don't expect to be put on an equity system. And and people just rent their time for for cash. I I call this the era of payroll. And I think the next era equity compensation will include ownership of companies that people work for. I, I love the old adage, the future is here, but not evenly distributed. And so you know, that's already happening in tech, uh, in Silicon Valley, where you work for a company and it would be weird if you didn't get uh, stock in that company that you work for, but it hasn't expanded much outside that. I think private equity is going to be the next sector or industry to adopt uh, equity ownership. I think five years from now, everybody, including receptionists, will get equity in the private equity-backed company that they work for. Uh, so that trend is already happening. I think we're seeing pockets of this in other industries uh, as well. For example, Giovanni did this for all the dairy farmers. We're starting to see it in media. Uh, as a common way to compensate actors uh, and actresses. So we're seeing it expand, but I, I hope Carta can accelerate that transition from a payroll economy to a ownership economy. The second thing that will happen is if you're giving all this equity out to employees and shareholders of private companies, how do they get liquidity? Cause not all companies are going to go public. And so one of the things that we're also working on is a liquidity solution for these companies called Carta Acts, which is a platform, a liquidity platform for these companies that decide that. Going public is not the right answer for them, but they still want to have equity that they can uh, redeem for liquidity and how do they go do that? And that's another, uh, a big part of the, the ownership economy is providing liquidity. So, so that's what I, I hope will change is that we we'll
1: ownership, was we'll economy and the line between public and private. I love it. This is something that is near and dear to my heart. I wrote a piece a few months ago called uh, Ownership in the American Dream. And I have kind of strong thoughts, but I'd love to hear just kind of philosophically, like why moving towards an ownership economy is important to you? I think wealth generation is
0: really tough. And how do you spread this more uh, equally? One of the the problems with wealth uh, generation, at least in the current capital system, is it disproportionately rewards investment over labor. And you actually see that ironically in our tax codes, right? The tax rate for passive investment is lower than for labor, which makes no sense to me. You, You want to incentivize people to work, not, not, you know, invest and 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 sit around, but also, you know, by definition, payroll is a, a debt product. It sits on the debt stack and if your wealth accumulation through payroll, like any debt instrument accumulates linearly. But equity is uh, ownership is an equity product and equity grows exponentially, right? If you have a growing economy where GDP is growing 4% a year, 3% a year on average, that means all of the equity ownership of that economy is growing 3% a year where payroll is not. And that's why we're seeing in the last, you know, two, three decades, income inequality expanding so dramatically is that those that were on the equity stack of, of companies uh, in the economy disproportionately grade wealth from those who were on the debt stack. And so our contribution of this wealth income inequality problem is how can we move more people off of the debt stack and into the equity stack?
1: What else needs to change for a world like this to come true? Like I, I would imagine that it would be hard to actually get liquidity for a lot of the small businesses out there that aren't kind of as sexy and, and big name as some of the tech companies that now sell secondary shares, you know, education of what it means to be an owner and what to do with that equity. seems like it's something that's important. What are the other kind of supporting factors that need to be in place to get to a world like that and however long it takes? I think education is a huge one. I think if you talk to people outside of tech
0: I and mean, you talk about ownership of, of companies that they work for, it it's a Entirely foreign concept. Nobody understands what that means. They don't also understand how to value that and, and what that could be. So I think education is a huge one. And we have a huge, I would say, education budget where we, we do things like uh, Equity 101 and we do webinars and we do programs at colleges where we're trying to educate the world on equity. So I think that's a, a, a really big one. Two is I think there has to be a, a mind shift where CEOs and management teams and boards of so companies valuing talent and long-term value creation of that talent more than they do. So now where the current economic model or management model is really based off of Albert Sloan and GF, right? Even business schools today, they're, they're built to train executives for manufacturing plants. That's like what they do. And, and it's all built on, on the Sloan school of management, you know, even 70 years, uh, 60, 70 years later. And I, I think the new. You know, economy and the new managed model is an inf- information uh, and, and knowledge model, right? Where the, the value of, of our employees is not in the widgets that they produce, but in brains and ideas that they, that they have. And I think the management philosophy has to, to change to support that, where you really want to nurture employees to stay and, and think for a long duration rather than, hey, I'm just going
1: to you know, turn the crank on the wheel this week and get paid for, for, for my, my efforts. What needs to change on the regulatory side? I know you've done a bunch of work uh, at Carta on, on working with regulators. Like how do we get ownership is just something that the government trusts people to, to have.
0: One of the examples is to change some of the tax code, you know, to incentivize ownership versus um, cash labor, but things like a credit investor, to your point about, you know, should everybody be allowed to, to buy companies? It's actually really funny. My, my mother wants to be a shareholder of Carta. And she couldn't, for the longest time, she couldn't buy because she didn't pass the credit investor rule, but she could buy Bitcoin, which I find crazy to me, but, but that is the current uh, state of, that's the rule set that we're wrestling with. And so we're trying to push policymakers in the SEC to change the credit investor rules to allow effectively a test-based accreditation instead of a means-based. Today it's a means-based, you have to have a certain amount of money or make a certain amount of income. So, so people who don't have a lot of money can't invest in private companies. We love to move it to where they can take a test and show that they demonstrate knowledge and what they're investing in and, and be able to, to invest in those companies. It's a really funny world we have today where you have private companies where nobody can invest in because you need permission from the CEO to invest. And then public companies where everybody can invest in, whether they care about the company, they understand the company uh, or not. And you know, they can even sell short against these companies. It's a free for all. And I think what you're going to see is like the unbundling of media where now instead of subscribing to a cable channel, I can subscribe to, to you, for example, and just listen to Paki and I could just subscribe to a YouTube channel or a YouTube personality, I can hear about the things that I'm actually care about. You will find investors in a new world order. You could find people get to invest in the things that they really do care about. Cause right now there's only 3000 public companies that a person can invest in. But if they opened up the world of private companies, I could invest in the manufacturer that makes toys for my kids you know, the, the Paw Patrol that my totally. son really loves, right? I can invest in hopefully Carta because I really believe in equity ownership. And you can start to really pick companies that you know about and care about rather than be uh, limited to the select youth or public.
1: Yeah. I mean, you use a Bitcoin example. I think one of the examples that just blows my mind is that people are allowed to trade options on Robinhood without knowing what the hell is, going. like nobody who's trading options on Robinhood knows what the hell they're doing, myself included. And yet you're not allowed to buy kind of, assets that one, don't have that kind of time decay that an option would have, but then two, you know, things that are to your point, companies that you maybe understand a little bit better than that, that universe of publicly available companies. I want to dig a little deeper even on the regulatory side, because this seems like something that is so, you know, commonly, at least when I talk to people, accept it as a good thing that people should be able to have ownership. Like where does the conversation get caught? Is it just that the wheels are slow to turn, but it's happening? Who believes what on which sides? Like, eh. Walk me through kind of like the nuts and bolts of what's happening in that process and when you think things will change.
0: Yeah, so it's super partisan. The, the uh, Republican side will say employee ownership is great. We work with a lot of Republicans on the Financial Services Committee, like uh, Congressman McHenry, who drafted both jobs acts and, and it's a big part of the third one. So there's a lot of uh, work on the Republican side that, that is progressive. Uh, the Democratic side is a little tougher. The Democratic side is more worried about investor protection. And their argument is that equity ownership is risky investing in private assets is risky and in fact when the companies are giving equity to employees that's not a, a benefit that's actually an excuse their view is that it's an excuse to pay them less in cash and so so they really view equity ownership as this predatory thing and so i think you're know, changing hearts and minds was a, a big part of it i'll give you i love your options example i'll give you another example where the world just doesn't make sense uh, in a in regulatory sense is that you can't invest in alternatives via uh, 401k, uh, do via and IRA in these tax deferred accounts or these tax free accounts. And the thing is, is these retirement accounts are exactly where you should invest in long duration assets, right? Because I can't access the capital. I can't sell this stuff anyway and use the money. So I might as well, from a diversification standpoint, invest my, my regular net worth into liquid assets where I can sell if I need to. And then my my tax deferred or, or retirement account should have all my low duration illiquid assets because I can't touch that money for 10 years anyway or 20 years. And that's where I should put my private investments. And for some reason, we can't do that. And it doesn't make any sense.
1: Trust me, I've written about and I'm an investor in Alto IRA. And that's, that's the thesis there. And when you run the numbers on what happens when you have those term assets, kind of in your retirement account that you can't touch anyway, the tax benefits of being able to do that just add up over time in, in such a way that like, it really doesn't feel like we're being protected from much, not even to get political. It's just, you know, I think a legacy of, of the system and hopefully rooting for you guys to, to change that, but going back to the basics, that's the vision that we're trying to get towards. That's a world we're trying to get towards the ownership economy. What is Carta doing today? What does the product suite look like? I would say we
0: have three core business lines that, that we serve. So the first one is on the equity side, where we're trying to make equity as simple, cheap, and easy as uh, a, and we have a, a suite of products that do that. Everything from what we're best known for is cap table management, the 401A valuations, to expense accounting, to uh, LLCs for, for non-C-Corps, you know, in private equity, for example, a lot of the equity is structured as, or companies are structured as LLCs. We have a car to total compensation product, which is how do you benchmark cash and equity? How, how do I know how much to pay me in, in this equity world? like, there isn't a lot of information about that. So we have a whole suite of products for, for uh, companies to figure out equity. We also have a, a suite of products and a business line for venture. They have a very similar problem in, in that. How do they manage their investments? How do they manage their LPs, which are effectively their shareholders? So we manage the back office of a lot of these venture funds so they can help track their, their ownership in companies and their shareholders, known as LP. And then our third line of business is, is Carta experts is our liquidity platform, which is when companies reach a certain scale, how do I give liquidity to my employees? How do I give liquidity to uh, my early investors? If I want to wait to go public, you know, are there ways that I
1: can release some of the liquidity pressures ahead of time? So I've been embarrassing uh, admission to make. So one of my earlier posts that I wrote in not boring, explored this idea that I made up called. World builders versus shot callers and world builders essentially are people, you know, use, I think, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and then you, and the, the kind of concept of it is, you know, you pick this like crazy vision that isn't so easy to see from the current moment. And you have this plan to execute on it. And then you just kind of put your head down and execute until you hit this vision and the world kind of catches up to the thing that you believe in. I heard you on the conversation with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, which I thought was great, kind of talking about actually how product roadmap is a lot more fluid than that and how you push down decision-making to the teams to figure out what new products to make. How much of what you're heading towards was like kind of a day one, you know, we knew what we were going after and that's the long-term vision and that's where we're headed. Experimentation on the way and then maybe how do you balance the short-term and the long-term?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the perennial question of, of every founder and entrepreneur and I would say that if you look, uh, and and you were so kind, Paggy, to talk to the right about this. Uh, you pulled one of my slides from my Series A deck. And I would say in our early Series A, we we saw, I would say, 50 to 60%, uh, call it half or a little more than half of our vision that we still have today. And we've been consistent uh, in that vision. So I don't think anything would change. I think we look at that Series A deck and we could still do that pitch today and and it would work. I think the other half of it wasn't, was less that our vision changed where we saw the world differently, but that as the world unfolded and we started to move the world in our direction, the, the scope of what we're able to do expand. Like, I, I think that's the amazing thing about startups, right? Is you find this crack in the world that you get through and suddenly you open up new light and you just start to see all the new products and markets and, and problems you can solve. And so I think, you know, if I were to put it very discreetly. You know, our compensation tool, we never saw. I never imagined us doing that in 2014, 15. I I knew it was a problem. It just didn't seem like a problem we would ever want to solve. And then by 2021, we looked at it and said, we should solve this problem. Like we have the data to solve this problem. We have the customer needs to solve this problem. We're well positioned to do that. Investor services, we, you know, it's 30% of our revenue now. We never saw that in 2014. We had ideas about how somebody can solve that problem. But by 2019, we said, hey, we are best positioned to solve this problem and let's go after it. So it's it's interesting. I, I almost look at it as like we still have line of sight to the same vision we've always had, but now the scope of what we can do along that that journey just keeps keeps expanding.
1: And what do you look for along that journey? Because like I, I'm, as someone who you to work going to start up but no, no longer has to build, like I just get to be excited about the fact that there are all these potential possibilities that might come if you get things right and you own that atomic unit of value and you can build off of that. But internally, when you actually have to build the thing, what's the decision making framework? What are the signposts that you're looking for to say, like, actually, yes, this is a problem that I didn't think we could solve, but actually we're in a really great position to solve walking through the internal decision-making.
0: Sure. So we do this thing I, I've talked about uh, called N of one versus one of N market. So is this a market where we could be the N of one player, the monopoly, the, the one and only one uh, winner of this market? So we, by design, will not go after any market that we think an equilibrium is competitive. So, so we have to have a clear line
1: of sight to, if we enter this market, we're going to be the, the dominant player and we're going to own the whole thing. I'm going to pause you there because I think this one is, is so interesting. I mean, for investors, for builders, for everybody to think about how do you evaluate whether a market is an end of one or one of N market?
0: Yeah, it's a great, great question. We have a framework for this. We actually think, think through this, whatever we decide or are trying to decide whether enter a new market or not, we run this exercise. If we were to imagine it five years, some other company came in and dominated this market, They they built something, they made something, they came to market. And we were five years and now, we're sitting around the table going, holy cow. And this company came out of nowhere in 2022 and 2027, we're sitting there and they, they completely own the whole thing. What would we say that this company did that made that true? Pr- and, and we do that kind of backward looking analysis into this market. And every market is unique and different, but we always come back to, to three things. One is they found a way to make the market structure and network effect, something that The product was not a network effect, but became a network effect because it's something they did. You get lock in, the the deeper you get in the market, the the more lock in you get into this market. So that's thesis one. And we have so many examples of that. We weren't the first cap table company. We were the first one that issued the security to shareholders and pulled them out of the platform, creating a network effect that drove our growth. The other cap table companies were just tools. You just sold it to the company and they just used it. And so we turned this cap table market from a tool market to a network market, as an example, and I, I can list all the products and we have clear thesis on how we turn these things into network markets. Sometimes it's a data network effect. Sometimes it's putting out fact, but there's always a network effect involved. The second thing we do is that this company has figured out some way to acquire uh, customers at, at high velocity. The reason that that matters is if this truly is a one of end market where one winner wins when it all. You have to be the one to win it all quickly, otherwise somebody else will figure it. And so you have to have a high-velocity customer acquisition model, and ours was chant, You know, we got the investors and the law firms to, to refer companies to us. And so the more companies that referred to us, the more law firms and investors started to, got pulled on the cart up, which brought more referrals. And that was our high-velocity customer. And I can do the same thing with all uh, our products. And then third is that you've figured out a way to create a new market where the TAM has expanded dramatically because you created a new market. And the way we define a new market is money has exchanged hands in a new way. So, you know, I would say, you know, PayPal created a new market because now you can move money between people in a way that didn't exist before. Airbnb created a new market because figure out a way for someone who has an apartment or a home to take, receive money from somebody who, who wants to borrow it. And so for us in the, in the cat table example, we figured out that all the table providers before that are competitors sold to law firms. We convinced the companies themselves to pay us. And that dramatically expanded the tab because, you know, the law firms are, don't have a lot of money, but the startups did. And so we were able to, to monetize. And so we, we do that exercise every time we look at a new market. And it, I, I might add the fourth one, which is specific to us, which is Do we have competitive edge in this market? So is there something that we can uniquely do to bootstrap in that nobody else can do? And when that's true, when those four things line up, that's
1: when we get really excited and go for it. So it seems like the framework, even going backwards from that, is like find this big open market where you can expand the TAM, figure out a way to acquire customers so fast that you're the one who takes advantage of the network effect in that market. And And the big thing is like, can we lock ourselves in here with network effect after we achieve product market fit? And does our unique capability give us the the confidence that we're going to be the ones who are able to go out and build that network effect and and find product market fit the quickest. What's your favorite kind of network effect? You mentioned a couple of different kinds there, but are there some that you like more than others when you're evaluating a market? How do you think about five years out? We're going to be sticky because we have X type of network effect.
0: Yeah. So we've been most successful uh, with relationship network effects, you know, and you could argue our capital business is purely, this is a, a overused and old analogy, but it's it's Facebook seven friends. You know, I was most likely if I logged into Facebook and saw seven friends that I would stay and, you know, um, upload photos, you know, and that was a relationship network effect. Ours is, you know, if one of your investors uh, already has a stock certificate on Carda, you're really likely to, to go on the Carda for your company to bring more investors on And So relationship network effect has, has certainly been our most, what we get really excited about is when, uh, network effects layer on top of each other. And so the, the example I'll use is we start with the cap table relationship network effect by connecting companies with their, with their shareholders. But then at some point you start to get enough critical mass that, wow, we have all this data that sits on top of it because we have all the companies and their investors and their cap table. And so can we build a, a data solution on top of that, that takes advantage of that data network effect. And that's our Carta compensation tool where now if a company is on Carta, we have their equity. They connect their payroll to us because we need their payroll information to calculate taxes tax for our employees. And now we bundle all of that and we can tell them, Hey, you're paying above market, under market for every single employee. We can tell them exactly where they sit against the benchmark. And then they want to give us more information because we can do more for them and that data network effect is, is super powerful. And then the third network effect type is liquidity. And now if we can also allow them to transact on that cap table and buy and sell shares and we aggregate supply, which are all the employees and investors want to sell, and then we aggregate the demand to go buy that, you're now building liquidity network effect on top of any great software business has to have one network effect. The incredible ones like Airbnb or, you know, Facebook will get two because, you know, they have a relationship network effect and then they put a data network effect or a, a liquidity network effect on. Like the really, really exceptional companies will get all three. Right, where you can get the relationship data and liquidity network effect into the same ecosystem. And we're mature on the relationship network effect. I would say we're, you know, kind of early mid stages on, on data network effect, we're real, still really early on liquidity network effect. But I think the only company I can think of that is really on this scale, is probably WePay where they build all data
1: network, all network effects on top of each other inside the same ecosystem and it's incredibly powerful. Absolutely. One of the things that jumps out at me from that is on the compensation product that you're almost, it's maybe slower than, you know, public market, but you're almost creating this marketplace where now people have visibility. And so prices should actually move in line with where they should be in terms of what people are being compensated. I know it's fairly early, but have you seen salaries adjust or maybe come more towards an average or median because of the existence and the usage of the product or how are companies using it if that's not the case?
0: Yes. It's very dramatic, the movement and, and. Not to do a 30 second sales pitch on the product, but this, what it is exactly is we already have the equity information. We also have the payroll information. So if somebody signs up, the very first thing that happens is we pull all, you know, let's say you have hundred employees, pull all the hundred employees from the product from payroll, we know their titles. We sort of use some magic, you know, AI to auto level and, and, and know this employee is a senior software engineer. So they're probably an E six in our leveling framework. So we level everybody automatically, all, all of those things. And then we benchmark them against, oh, what's the average E 6 engineer in San Francisco for a series, you know, a hundred person startup make, and they make X dollars and your employee makes X, you know, minus $10,000. And we can do that for every single employee instantly. And then what's powerful about that is the benchmark are cost every night. And we look at all the, the payroll. And so if a company. If a bunch of companies are giving raises to the E6 engineers in San Francisco, that automatically reflects. So these benchmarks are moving real time and we can see how, you know, normally compensation today is, is a one year lag, right? Once a year, you know, a compensation consultant will do a survey they'll get the data and they'll republish the data and, and it's a one year lag. Now we're able to see stuff in real time and we've seen dramatic changes in the last, I mean, we're seeing material changes in salary every quarter and equity every quarter these days. Now what we're seeing is in our data, we're starting to see, see layoffs starting to happen and the movement
1: of salaries is starting to, to slow down. That makes sense. I guess that's a really good transition into, you have one of the best seats in the world to understand what's going on in the venture market right now. What are you seeing? Should people be as scared as they, as they you know, would maybe be if they opened up Twitter and read what was going on? What's the reality uh, on the field? I, I would say it's not as bad as people are saying on on Twitter. We are not seeing the world
0: end. Granted, uh, you know Q three Q four could could look a little bit different. But just for perspective. You know Q one was our best quarter ever. Q two is is down. Will be down. We think from Q two, but you know ten percentage. So it's it's not falling off a cliff. This isn't at least it's not 2020 February April, March of 2020. It's not 2008. If this is going to be a a uh, decline, it's going to be a slower, uh, protracted decline, not a sudden falling off to the face of the earth type decline. What I think is happening is y- you are seeing liquidity exit the system. So the number of secondaries that are happening is slowing down. The bid-ask spread on secondaries and even on primaries is really wide and that's creating a standstill in the market. But I would say in the early stage, it hasn't trickled down yet. We're still seeing a ton of companies doing series C and series A's, you know, that would probably slow down as it, as it trickles down. But there's so much capital, I think, that's still in the system from venture funds. To, you know, wh- one of the things that's interesting about public markets is they can react and capital can come into the system and it can exit the system instantly. But in the private markets, when they raise these funds, they raise them for 10 years. And so all these funds have raised and they still have, you know, a 10-year deployment cycle and they're flush with cash. And all these companies, including us, we're very lucky. All these companies have raised huge amounts on their balance sheet. So if and if there is a massive repricing, a lot of these companies will will have the cash to stay alive and I I think survive this storm. So it's not as dire as people
1: are saying, at least not yet. It it looks okay. Yeah. That's one of the most fascinating pieces of this to me is how much money some companies have raised over the past couple of years. And every investor update email I get now is like, look, we extended our our runway from 24 to 36 months. And so Hopefully, you know, over the next 18, 24, 30 months, things return at least a little bit to, to normal and companies are growing faster than they ever have. And so hopefully the growth kind of outpaces the multiple compression and there's not a wave of pain for the very good companies. There are certainly a lot of companies out there that that probably should and, and will be shaken out, but I'm interested to see how talent flows to the ones with uh, the big balance sheets and who are building useful products that people are actually using out there you know, that position that you have with all that cash on the balance sheet, with a big brand name, with kind of the stability, have you seen already that people are starting to apply to Carta more relative to maybe something a little bit riskier? Or has that trickled through uh, on the employee side yet for you guys? Yes. I mean, we, we
0: get some like 30,000 applications a year and a half that come to Carta. And it started, it's growing as we get more, more awareness of what we're doing. People really like the, the mission. And I think you're right. The recession will weed out sort of the, the less strong companies and will disproportionately reward the winners. And, and that's what I tell my employees. For the quality companies, recessions are actually a really positive thing because it, it, it weeds out all the, the excess noise, right? I, I The analogy I use is uh, it's a little bit like uh, forest fires. You know, They're destructive. They're really hard, but it clears out all the brush so that the large oaks can grow and access sunlight better. And so the best companies will get more sunlight coming out of a recession and they'll survive it and They'll, they'll succeed. And if we think we're a quality tier one company, this is actually a great thing for us. It will be painful for sure, but we'll come out of the stronger and, and better. And I think that's that's going to be largely true. I think you're going to see coming out of this thing, the winners disproportionately win, which which may not be a good thing for the ecosystem in general, but I, I think will be a good thing for, for those companies.
1: Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. You talked about communicating to the team in a market environment like this. You've been at this for a while, you're an experienced founder, the company's doing well, and you deal with startup equity professionally. And so you have, I think, a really good perspective on it. What happens in this world when everybody owns shares in their company and managers now have to not just say like, yes, your paycheck is good, but uh, that you see that number in Carta, like it, it looks a lot worse than it did a few months ago. I guess maybe it comes back to the education, but what are the things that you're worried about or, or protecting against already for a world in which all employees own equity in the companies that they work for?
0: Yeah. So. In the public world, they're having a really hard time uh, because, yes, these public company employees are way underwater now and they're all trying to figure out, do we, you know, do we reset uh, and issue them new equity at the new price, but I don't want to set a precedence and it's a huge problem. And all these employees are are demoralized and they're all trying to figure out, oh, I should go work for a private company (laughs) where I don't experience crazy public market volatility. I think the private companies, it is hard because nobody knows the true value now. These companies, a lot of these companies had inflated values, and so the exec team and the employees are saying, "Hey, am I working for funny money? Right? Am I working for you know stock that's going to be worthless in three years?" Uh, And they're really starting to question. A lot of sort of call them tourists that come in and I want to work for a startup. Suddenly, this this is where we find people who really not as fun anymore. Totally, (laughs) and you know, I I, we haven't seen it yet, but I can totally imagine some employees at Carta because we hire a lot from the banking sector and. Working for a startup was sexy. Everyone wants to go work for a startup and blow now. It's, now it's not as sexy, <laughs> you know, these are tough times. Let me go to a bank where I, I let go back to the bank uh, banks where I can, you know, good, good cash. So I, I do think there's going to be sort of a, a, cyclical sector transition and you'll, you'll find out not just who the, who the strong companies are, but really employees that really want to, uh, to grind it
1: out, even in the downturn. So to wrap up here, what gets you most excited about what you're building Right now, and what scares you most? Like, just kind of like, what's the current state of of your mindset at at CARTA right now, and and what does the next kind of year for you guys look like?
0: So, I'm super excited about the the the, the current platform and products we have in market. You know, I would say two two and a half years ago, we had an existential crisis. We we didn't have enough products in market. All we really had was the cap table business, and we knew that eventually we'd run out of time, run out of oxygen, and and not be able to find new, new customers. So we, we put our heads down and we said, look, we've got to expand the, 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 product suite, so we invested heavily in our investor services product, which we sell the venture fund, we built our LLC product We built our, our compensation product. We started building a liquidity product and we went on a, on a tear. just just, just and D innovation and all those things are in markets and they're, and they're working now, which is, which is incredible. We also built some stuff that didn't work uh, that never made it out of the lap, but, but we have a few things that did make it out of the lap and are working really well. And so now uh, what I'm telling the team is recession slash we have a lot of products to market is not the time for innovation anymore. Our job now is to, to bend on the things that are, are working and double down. And we're actually going through a whole exercise, looking at all the experiments that we have and ideas that we're chasing down and we're killing those things and saying all efforts should be focused on doubling down on the things that we already know works, no more speculation. You know, there maybe in 2025, come back to the drawing board and want to innovate on new stuff. But for now, going into a recession and with our current products meet, let's focus on making what what, what we already do great. And that's what both worries me and gets me excited is (laughs) we have great stuff in market and
1: now can we really execute those things? I told you that was going to be the last one, but because of, because of the answer, probably one that a lot of founders and CEOs are thinking about right now is like, if you have a team that's built towards innovation and a culture that's built toward innovation, and you're moving more into kind of like the execution and making sure that you maximize the value of the products that you have in market. What are the things that you need to do and think about? And how do you have to act as a company to make that transition? It's really hard.
0: I have this discussion constantly where I'm like, Hey, I, I think that's experimental. Let's, let's kill it. And the team is like very understandable. Like, no, but it's really important. And they're right. <laughs> what they're doing is important. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's, you know, all the bad ideas already, you know, got killed before I, I show up, right. It's the it's a good ideas that are hard to go and, and getting into this mindset of, Hey, you know we have to be able to not work on good ideas and work on, not work on good things. is really hard because we've always been a company uh, that has pursued any good idea to see if we can pull that thread long enough to make something valuable. And now we're, we're really saying like, we're not going to do that. Anymore. Like good ideas are not good enough anymore. You have to have demonstrable evidence that this thing's worked. And and demonstrable evidence is, you know, something that gets from zero to a million bucks uh, a month in, in six months, right? So it's, it's a high bar uh, to get an idea to work that well. And so that, that mindset of like, Hey, we're going to really strip everything away out of the five or six things that we're going to do and no more, no more, no more laboratories. That's a really hard mindset. And so I, I spend all my time talking to teams about
1: that. Henry, I really appreciate you coming on. And, and this was a lot of fun, particularly after calling you a world builder and fanboying a couple of years ago. Great to finally meet.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, good This is wonderful.